So I've sort of taken a break a little bit from making a whole lot of my own work. And it's kind of nice because as opposed to what I had when I was at the farmer's market, now every single time I'm standing at the lathe, I know I'm getting paid for it. Welcome to Remodel Your Life. Shining the light on women working in the trades and remodeling their life into something better. Join a female cabinet maker in California in bringing together kitchen remodeling and working with your hands for a living. Welcome your host, Camille Finan. I'm Camille Finan, and I'm so excited to bring you my next guest, Ashley Harwood. I have been following her career for several years now and have to admit to having a little bit of a girl crush. She is a superb wood turner and has such an interesting story to share about her trade and how she makes a living basically by cutting wood and making these beautiful pieces of art. So let's dive right in. listeners for joining us today. Today we have a special treat. We have Ashley Harwood, who's an amazing wood turner. So welcome to the show, Ashley. Oh, I'm super excited that you're here. Thank you so much, Camille. Yeah. Great to be here. Yeah. So I met you because I saw you at a, I mean, obviously I saw a little bit of your work online and it was amazing that you're a woman doing what you do and you, you do wood turning and you do fairly large size of scale, which is unusual as well. And so I visited you at the local farmer's market and saw you actually doing your work in person, which was incredible. So I have a little bit of a girl crush (laughs) because I think it's really cool what you do. So I just wanted to share with our listeners what your life is like and how you got started and how you make a living at it and where you're hoping to take it. So could you describe where you live and kind of what you do as a profession, a trade? Sure. So I live in Charleston, South Carolina. And I've been turning, it's about eight years now. I was in the Charleston Farmer's Market that you were describing for seven years. It was actually my dad who first got me interested in wood turning. So he turns for a hobby. I studied art. I studied actually sculpture and installation art when I was in college. So pretty much the least practical form of art you could find. (laughs) But I bet it's actually helped with what you do now, though, a little bit. Like, you're probably more informed than you think you are. It helps me think and talk about forms. It definitely helps me self-critique and try and figure out how I can get better. Mm -hmm. Where I feel like a lot of people that have approached, um, you know, something like wood turning as a hobby tend to put their heart and soul in it. And and it's a little bit difficult to, a little bit more difficult to critique, I think. Mm -hmm. So art school definitely helped in that way. Yeah. But yeah, I, I knew that I wanted to make a living making things, and I thought it was going to be glass blowing. I was actually doing that on the side while I was in college, and I worked at a neon shop for a little while. But my dad said, Ashley, that glass blowing stuff is way too hot. You should just try wood turning. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, as though as though wood turning is safer, right? That's actually kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess it's relative, but yeah, it could still be pretty risky. I think, given the size of the stuff you're doing. Well, I think he was more describing just the general discomfort. Mm. <laughs> right. But, uh, I don't know. I, I thought the danger thing made it more fun. But, yeah. yeah. So about how old were you then when you, you went to college and then you decided to get into the glass blowing, but then kind of transferred about how old were you? I would have been 27 when I first started wood turning. Oh, wow. Yeah. I first started glass blowing when I was about 20, I think, and continued it kind of on the side. Like I said, it as a hobby, sort of, but something that I really thought that I wanted to do for a living. Mm -hmm. But glass blowing, it it turns out, is really difficult to set up in your own studio. And you have to have a furnace at 2,100 degrees, 24 hours a day. So you're literally burning money while you sleep. Wow. And with wood turning, I thought, well, here's something where I can actually use salvage materials. I can use urban timber, trees that are coming down anyway, that people are taking down in their yards and and things like that and keep it from going to the landfill. So I thought, well, yeah, this will work. (laughs) Yeah. I guess that's how, that's how I got started. 
And so what was your dad's involvement in that outside of just sort of mentioning it to you? I mean, did he, did you go to school for that? How did you actually go from glass blowing, which is obviously incredibly different, the materials alone, to how did you get started doing that? Did he help with that or what sort of happened there? So my dad and I took a class together, a week long bowl turning class with a guy named Dale Larson. After that class, that's when I said, yep, yep, this is it. And I applied for a grant in Charleston to start up my business. I was accepted into the Charleston farmer's market that year. And that I was really surprised because it's kind of hard to get in. Mm-hmm. Then I thought, well, now, uh oh, like, what am I going to do now? Now <laughs> right. I have to actually fix oh, them. Shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I sort of put it, put myself in this situation where I had to get good very quickly. Otherwise it wasn't going to work. Right. I was bartending at the same time for the first year that I was turning. Hmm. And then towards the end of that year, the restaurant I was working at closed. And I thought, well, you know, now or never. For a while, it was every week that I didn't have to get another job as a bartender. It felt like a huge success. And and eventually, that just sort of faded away. How much was it to go to that school? Just because I'm kind of trying to share like actual practical stuff. If someone wanted to, you know, explore a trade or, or start something like, Mine is kitchen remodeling, which is, you know, incredibly expensive to get into. It's not like you can just have a full running shop easily. So I kind of like to be honest with people sort of upfront of all the different kinds of things that women can do in the trades, but also just like, what's the investment or like, what's the minimum thing you can kind of do to, you know, get a little bit of training. So, I mean, do you remember what that class was like roughly? If I had to guess, I'm going to say it was maybe $1,200 to $1,500 for the week. Yeah. Wow. That's... That's really inexpensive, actually. As an intro class to something like that, though, you know, that's kind of enough to get your feet wet and decide Mm -hmm. whether or not you like it. Yeah. I feel like where I really benefited was more later on. I'd applied to another grant in Charleston for things like bandsaw blades and wood and finishing supplies and sandpaper and all this other stuff. And they came back to me and they said, um, instead of this thousand dollars that you applied for, we're going to give you 400 and we think you should use it to go to this North Carolina wood turning symposium. Mm. And I'm like, man, that's like, I don't have time for this. I need to be here working. I need to be making yeah. stuff. Yeah. But it was actually when I went there that I met a guy named Stuart Batty. Stuart is a third generation wood turner. He grew up turning in the trade in England and learned from his dad who learned from his dad. Hmm. And he was trying to start up a tool company at the time. So he met me and he said, Ashley, how about I'll teach you how to be really good at wood turning and you can help me sell my tools. Mm. That was where I really improved. And I think it was partly because I, I struggled for the first eight or nine months, you know, trying to make a business out of this. And I, I had really poor techniques. I didn't really know what I was doing, mm-hmm. um, but, but learning from somebody who could really break down the techniques, teach me how to sharpen my tools and why they work best when they're sharpened a certain way, all that kind of stuff. I soaked it up like a sponge. Like I said, I, I was trying to make a living at it at the time. After that, my dad started taking lessons from me. <laughs> he was um, <laughs> wow. for, for Christmas and birthdays and things like that. That's what he would ask for would be private lessons. Mm-hmm. So after you came back working with Stuart, then what sort of, what was the first, product you made and why did you think that was going to work? So working with him, it was sort of an informal apprentice type situation where whenever he was traveling, teaching classes all over the country, I would go with him and I would be his teaching assistant. So at the same time I was helping him to teach the class, I was benefiting from the same information that the students were getting. So it wasn't like he lives in Colorado. It wasn't like I moved out to Colorado. It wasn't like he was in South Carolina full time. So I was continuing to make my work for the farmer's market. And it was at the end of that first year I was in that market. uh, It was in 2009. I started making these sea urchin ornaments, which was something, it was a project idea that I had seen in the AAW magazine, the American Association of Woodturners magazine. Stuart gave me a lesson on how to turn finials. And those little sea urchin ornaments were very popular. And I'm a little embarrassed that the first ones that I made are out there somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Let me guess, you're a lot better at making them now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, a little bit. So I figure by now I've probably made over 3,000 of those ornaments. Wow. Yeah, I was paying my mortgage with those for a while. (laughs) Yeah, and I I think I, I mean, I bought one and I think I remember 
just how intricate they were. And I couldn't believe they were fucking out of wood. I remember thinking, I can't believe that's a piece of wood. Like it's, they're incredible for how little they are. There's a lot packed in them. So I can, I can see why. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. So it was a kind of a little bit of luck combined with just technique and kind of being with the right mentor. And I think mentoring is obviously extremely important for anybody, but I think it's even more important for women because it sounds like Stuart gave you a lot of confidence right off the bat that you could actually do this. I mean, he just did it by showing you and being around you. Right. I mean, he would also pull me up, you know, if he was giving a demonstration, you know, he would say, oh, and my my lovely assistant is going to come and sharpen my tools for me, you know, and mm-hmm. people thought it was really patronizing at the time, but it was actually getting me used to being up in front of an audience and, and giving a demonstration, you know, gradually he'd work in more where, where I would have speaking roles in those things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I learned how to turn. I also learned how to teach and I learned exactly how to, how to have a bit more confidence in my work. Yeah. But the farmer's market, you know, that really helped quite a bit too, because unlike, I guess, unlike what you would have in a gallery style situation where you're kind of removed from the customer, I had that one-on-one experience and I could see basically what percentage of people walking by were stopping at my booth and other people that were stopping, what they were looking at, what they were picking up, how they were handling it, how they were feeling it. And part kind of a funny thing about, you know, being a, a female in this business is a lot of the times I was privy to conversations that people wouldn't have been having if they thought that I was the maker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But that helps, you know, that, that I learned a lot from that mm-hmm. um, in terms of, of figuring out what people wanted and, and how to make a living at it. And so did anybody in sort of some of those conversations, do you feel like people really underestimated you kind of underestimated that you were the one actually doing the real work? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that was the first assumption that people were making my first year at that farmer's market that I had not anticipated at all. So it started out, I guess, a few months in, I I took a picture of me turning something really, really big and uh, blew it up and put it in my booth. But that wasn't, that turned out to not really be enough. A lot of people would miss that completely. (laughs) I thought (laughs) They thought you were just a beautiful young girl standing next to a huge machine. That's yeah. funny. Yeah. Or they they would just miss the photo. They just wouldn't see it because there's so many other things going on there. I started bringing a lathe. I started bringing my mini lathe and turning like, like you were describing, turning those ornaments at the farmer's market. And that actually, that started to generate a lot of interest in turning as an activity. I was, it, it didn't necessarily help me sell my work, but it started getting people interested in turning. And that's when I thought, wow, okay, I should start teaching classes here. I should use this as a platform to sell my class spots. But yeah, later on, I, I started having apprentices of my own and they would be guys. And you know, so, somebody would walk up to uh, like my friend Zach, they'd say, hey, uh, I'm wondering, can I get this bowl here, but you know, in this type of wood, do you have something like this? And he would say, oh, Ashley's, Ashley's the turner here. She's, she's the one you need to talk to. And they'd look over and they'd see me turning a little finial and they'd turn back over to Zach and say, okay, yeah, but really, please tell me, can you make this whole? <laughs> so, didn't even compute. Right. Yeah. We call this with my husband and I, we call this the penis factor, believe it or not. Uh, I'll walk on the job and I'm, you know, neither you're taller than me, but I'm short and small and I look a lot younger than I actually am. But naturally on every single job site, like if Larry's doing the electrical, they think he's running the entire job and they will always walk up to him first and ask anything to do with anything in the entire job. And I'm literally installing cabinets like right in front of them. And they will turn to Larry and ask the question of (laughs) the stuff about cabinets. And he's like, I have no idea. It's completely her. He's like, I'm just putting this light switch in. So yeah, we call it, we call it the penis factor. Like inevitably they always assume he knows what he's doing and they always assume that I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) So it's kind of funny. I don't think that I don't think that most people really mean any harm by it. No, no. It's just, it's just so unusual to see a woman doing the actual physical work, not the design, right. And the pretty parts, but the actual physical doing and making. And so, and that's part of what the show is about is actually showing the women doing the actual work, not just designing finials, right. Or designing kitchens, but building the kitchen, building the finial, right. Right. Carving it, you know, turning it. 
Okay, so that actually it sounds like that exposure, that sort of physically making yourself do the work in front of people and getting comfortable with that, I would imagine would build your confidence quite a bit and make you feel really good about what you're doing. How did you transition from the sea urchins, which we're going to put a picture in the show notes, are very small and very delicate to mm-hmm. these large scale bowls that I've seen you do that are, you know, really dense and really big and complex in a different way. Like how did you, those two are so completely different to me. So how did you get to do the other as well? You know, I, I actually started out making bowls. That was the first thing that I started turning. And I thought that that, that would be plenty just making bowls. And I, I learned, I learned a few things in that, I guess. Uh, you know, making making bowls is fun, and it's certainly like exhilarating to make something that's really big and challenging and kind of dangerous, like mm-hmm. we were talking about before. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a whole lot of competition in bowls. There's a lot of hobbyist woodturners that love to make bowls. Almost everybody knows somebody, who, you know, whether it's a neighbor or an uncle or a dad or a grandfather. Almost everybody knows somebody who makes bowls. Um, and they don't necessarily know what to look for in terms of, you know, difference in quality, mm-hmm. or maybe it just doesn't matter that much. It's just beautiful because it's wood and it's a bowl. So I found it difficult to make a living at that. But that was something that I kind of started out doing. More recently, though, within the last year, I started working with a company out of St. Louis called Goebel and Company Furniture. Hmm. I got a call from a guy. He's my age, Martin Goebel. He said a little more than a year ago. And he said, I have this idea for a table. It's a pedestal style table. And I would like for you to turn the center of it. And I said, okay, you know, tell me what you've got in mind. And he's kind of describing it to me and and showing me sketches and things. And I said, how big do you want it? And he said, how big can you make it? (laughs) Well, (laughs) you're like, I love a challenge. Right. I'm like, I think, you know, the maximum we could go with my lathe would be probably like 23 inches. He's like, okay, well then that's what it's going to be. Wow. And, uh, after this conversation, I, I had another conversation with Stuart, uh, the guy who, who had mentored me. And I said, Stuart, you know, any kind of any and all recommendations that you have to, to mount this thing and to, to turn this thing safely, mm-hmm. I'm open to. And so we talked about that for a while and we figured out a few things that I was going to do. Cause when I put this blank up on a lathe, it's, I think it's somewhere around like three or 400 pounds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I have to have an engine noise to lift it up. And at the end of the phone conversation, Stuart says to me, he goes, Ashley, you know, I've never turned anything that big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The student has now become the teacher. It was, it was, I wouldn't say that so much. Mm-hmm. Um, he certainly could, but he hasn't yet. And he's been, I, I like to kid him. He's been turning longer than I've been alive. Yeah. So yeah, it was kind of like, well, here goes nothing. I mean, it's all the same principles and spindle turning. Once you understand the mechanics of the cuts and why they work the way they do, it's actually the same skills to make a finial as it is to make something that's really big like that. The tools mm-hmm. are, are working exactly the same way. And so did you turn one? (laughs) We've actually made three at this point. Hmm. The first one was out of ash. The second one was cherry, solid cherry. And for the second one, we decided to do a turned foot as well. And that foot was, I think it was maybe 50 inches in diameter uh, for the cherry one. When that one was up on the lathe, it was, it was taller than me. Wow. I know. I'm just trying to visualize that. I mean, Wow. Yeah, there's a bunch of pictures on my Instagram account. Okay. <laughs> we'll link to that. Um, yeah, the last one was Walnut. And the last mm. one, we got quite a bit of, of really nice photographs and, and video from. Hopefully, we're going to have like a nice little short video documenting the entire making of the thing. Nice. Yeah, I bet that's beautiful. I don't even think I've seen a piece of cherry that big now that I'm thinking about it. Because my stuff all comes, you know, partially milled. And I don't think I've ever even seen anything that big in cherry. <laughs> So it's pretty interesting the way that we decided to put it together. The first one was just a slab glue up out of ash, but with the cherry one, we decided to do a stave glue up. Hmm. So it's this, I believe it was eight sided, Mm -hmm. an eight sided stave glue up. So there's a lot of labor that just goes into putting that piece together. And then for the walnut one, I feel like we really perfected it 
these guys had each of the staves CNC milled. So they were absolutely perfect. 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 Together. Yeah. Wow. So you had these super crisp, clean lines and joints, basically. Like, oh, yeah. beautiful. Nice. So they're already doing the glue up and then they send it to you and then you turn it? Yeah. With the, with the last one, they actually drove it to me. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, the, the glue up for the center pedestal and the base. Hmm. Nice. And so... So basically you're going into a, like a partnership with them, sort of, you're trying to develop a new type of product, right? Right. And you're just going to do the turning for him. I mean, what's the sort of thought there of trying to make money from that for you? Yeah, I'm just doing the turning for me. It's, you know, it's exciting to work on something like that. That is so big. And it's, it's been getting a lot of attention on social media mm -hmm. on his account and on mine. And a lot of people I feel like have never, a lot of people have no idea what wood turning is right. um, or have never seen it before. So to see these images of this table coming together, you know, starting with the raw lumber and then building the staves and then putting the staves together and then turning the thing and finishing it and assembling the table, you know, step by step by step by step. It's been really cool that there have been so many people the world over following along on this project. And I feel like the end result is something that, you know, whoever ends up with this piece is, is really going to have a strong understanding of, of how it's put together, but it's also something that's going to last forever mm -hmm. through generations. So for me, yeah, you know, it's, it's partly about money, but it's also about, I guess, pushing myself and trying to find where my limits are, you know, mm -hmm. and, and how big can I go? And right. And so separate from the, the artistic part, which I would call you more of an artist and a, uh, you know, you have a technical specialized skill in woodworking and I'm sort of trying with the show to show like, there's just so many different ways that you can make a living in the trades or in construction or the woodworking side. So you would be what I would consider the woodworking side, whereas I'm more like a cabinet maker. So it's not really artistic. I mean, I'm not, it's the same techniques over and over again, and I'm more working one-on-one -on -one with clients all the time is how I make money. And it's pretty consistent how the, the business makes money, right? My business model. Yeah. What are you thinking? And of course, this is your very first business where I've had five businesses before. So this is like my last business. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, this is your first business and it's still new because you're still basically trying to figure out how to make a living at it. Because I think personally, a big part of getting into the trades is figuring out how to make a living at it. There's the fun, beautiful, wonderful parts of learning, you know, new skills and all that. But a big part of why people either don't get into it or don't stay in it is because they can't make a living at it. Right. Yeah. What are you trying to do as a woman to build your business so that it's, you know, you can buy a house, buy a car, have kids or whatever it is you sort of want to do, or are you more on the sort of you know, you really like the artistic part and you're, you're not as interested in how to build a larger business. Well, when I moved to Charleston, I bought, I bought a house when I moved here. And the way that I chose the house that I got was, was for the detached garage. I, mean, <laughs> I picked the house with a thousand square foot detached garage. And I said, you know, this is a, mm -hmm. this is my workspace. And I didn't even know I was going to be a wood turner at the time. So I kind of, I, I had that already, but then the burden was, of course, paying the mortgage and trying to start up the business at the same time. I guess I've, I've approached it from a point of view where I'm not trying to like, uh, like take over the world of wood turning or I'm not, I'm not motivated to make a ton of money. I'm motivated to get by, you know, and to be relatively comfortable and not, not to have to worry month to month. I guess these last couple of years, two or three years for me have been kind of a breakthrough where I do feel like I've reached that point hmm. with a number of, I have a number of production clients at this point. Um, that furniture company is one of them. I don't have time to do that farmer's market anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's nice to be able to sleep in on a Saturday. Yes, exactly. Um, and I'm getting more and more invitations to teach and demonstrate wood turning. So I get to travel a good bit. So now mm -hmm. it's now for me, I guess it's more about figuring out, what do I want my life to be like? You know, how much time do I want to be in Charleston versus how much time am I on the road? You know, mm -hmm. how much of my income do I want to come from teaching classes versus doing production work and trying to find more of a, more of a life balance. But I think in terms of getting into it, 
um, and starting to make a living, you couldn't beat what, what I had with that farmer's market and the way that it was structured at the time. It was really built to, to incubate small businesses and to give people a way to, to get out and to, you know, to create a clientele base, to have people that recognize your work. And I did that for seven years. Yeah. That's a big commitment. <laughs> people underestimate how much work that is. Yeah. Every single weekend, right? <laughs> like right. from yeah. April till Christmas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so in doing that, I looked at it more like, you know, some people pay a lot of money for PR companies and things like that to be out and to get that kind of exposure. And I was putting in the work to get that kind of exposure. Mm -hmm. And it was ultimately that, that, that led me to, you know, my, my biggest production job that I have right now, a, um, a woman actually signed up her husband for a private lesson. I think it was a Christmas present or a birthday present. Um, and he later went to work for a lighting company. And then this lighting company said, Hey, you know, we have this design and it's a shallow wooden bowl. We need to find somebody to make it. And, you know, he said, well, I think I know someone, <laughs> 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 but it, it was just that that constant being out there and putting yourself out there. And I had the market manager, the first couple of years I was there was very encouraging. And she mm -hmm. said, uh, because there would be several days that I wouldn't sell anything and I'd still have to pay rent. You know, I'd still spend all that time, all that effort, and I would make no money. Mm -hmm. And she would say, Ashley, you have to look at it like a perennial garden. The first year you don't really get anything. The second year, it's going to start to bloom. And the third year is really when it begins to come into its own. And she was so right. Hmm. Thanks again for listening this far. We're going to take a quick break and I'm going to tell you about a product I just love that helps support this show. Hey guys, I'm here putting away just the last of my Blue Apron box. You know, it only takes a few minutes to put all the food away. I absolutely love that. Everything's individually wrapped. And I was thinking about the fact that I can't stop talking about Blue Apron. And uh, I had another thing that I thought of last week. I had some of my neighbor girls come over and I've been using Blue Apron to teach them how to cook. And they absolutely love it because they get to unpackage all the little items. They get to learn new vocabulary words. All the words are on their recipe card. They can look them up. We can talk about them. They get to learn all new different ways of cooking, right? Chopping, dicing, all kinds of different kinds of recipes that they wouldn't normally get access to. And I really believe that it's great if you're a kid to be introduced to more unusual foods, not just all the same stuff. It gives you a much wider palate when you're a grown up. So I just noticed that these girls absolutely love cooking. They love cooking side beside me. And it just makes for a really, really fun evening. And they like all the different interesting recipes too. We've made homemade pizzas together. We've made homemade hamburgers together. We've made pastas together salads together, all kinds of things that they normally wouldn't really have access to making. That's why I love it. Once again, Blue Apron has basically pulled out the best parts of cooking. So if you want to experience this cooking style Blue Apron with maybe a child in your life, I would highly recommend it. You're going to save money. There's going to be no hassle, no food waste, and the kid is going to absolutely have a blast. Sign up today. It'll help my show. And I really thank you for your support. Go to remodelyourlifepodcast.com forward slash blue apron and save $30 off of your first week. And tell me about your experience with cooking with a child. I'd really love to hear the story. So my business model is I basically meet a client, a woman, I design her kitchen, I build and finish the cabinets and I install them over and over and over again, right? So that's like my business model. So I'm working one-on-one right. -on -one with a, a mom of the house, not builders or whatever. And so you would say your business model then, so people are sort of clear, is you do get paid for doing demonstrations and teaching, correct? So you travel yeah. the country and you get paid by 
craft hobby clubs, that type of thing. And, and okay. So they pay for you to come. Then you also, I know you have your own classes that you teach occasionally throughout the year, which we will get to. And then you do, so maybe like 25, 25, and then maybe 25% is physical products that you have made yourself that are more artistic, like bowls and the finials and that kind of thing. And then maybe another 25% or 30 from what you're calling production work. So you're making a product that is the same thing over and over again for a certain company. Is that correct? Well, I guess I would, I would put the percentages a little bit different, but yeah, I would say right now the production work is maybe like 50 to 60%. Hmm. And my work, the bowls and the finials, I'm really not making very much of that at all right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just, I feel like that's a temporary thing. And the, as far as the teaching goes, the traveling, and, and sometimes I get to go to other countries too, which is really fun. But the traveling is probably uh, about 30%. And then the, the classes that I do here um, and everything else would make up the remaining 20%. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I guess uh, when I quit doing the farmer's market, I've sort of, you know, and, and, and trying to figure out all the organization that it takes with, uh, with doing this production work. You know, now all of a sudden I have subcontractors that I have to mm-hmm. <laughs> working with and everything. So I've sort of taken a break a little bit from making a whole lot of my own work. And it's kind of nice because as opposed to what I had when I was at the farmer's market, now every single time I'm standing at the lathe, I know I'm getting paid for it. Hmm. <laughs> that's, that's a good feeling. <laughs> it's, it's not a matter of, well, let me make something and then show up and try and, you know, convince somebody else that what I made is worth paying for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're actually really working on your business, not sort of, you know what I mean? Like you've, you've created the business and now there's demand. And so now you're meeting the demand. Whereas before you had to literally create demand for it. Yeah. Okay. So I kind of have a vision for what you're looking for, you know, sort of in the future, you're basically going to do more of that and get better and better clients, better, better production clients. And then obviously your classes can become, you know, more and more successful as well. Do you have a boyfriend? Like personally, how has this affected your professional life? Are you married? (laughs) Um, Nope. I am single. (laughs) Yeah. And it, it's because it, it can be hard to have a personal life and run a business like this. So that's why I'm asking. <laughs> that's true. It does have challenges with all the travel. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course the time commitment and everything, but I guess it creates quite a bit of independence as well. I mean, I, I certainly don't, I don't need anybody else. Mm-hmm. I am financially independent. You know, I do, you know, have my house on my own at this point, which is really nice, but Aside from all of that, I guess it's, I feel more independent in other ways too. Hmm. I guess my business has become my passion in the last few years. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess it, it's going to take a lot for somebody to pull me away from that. <laughs> right. Um, but have you dated guys that have sort of struggled with, you know, the fact that you're physically dirty and dusty and sweaty? And I mean, has, has that been... Uh, difficulty or is how have guys approached that with you physically doing the work, which is very physical, what you do, very physical chainsaws, huge pieces of wood, like, you know, <laughs> huge machinery, that kind of thing. Like how, how has that struggle been or, or whatever? I haven't really had too much of an issue with that. I would say the, the guys that I've dated have, have tended to be the kind of people that would find that more of a turn on. Mm-hmm. I guess where I have had issues in the past, um, I was in one relationship where as I got to be more financially successful than he was with his business, I think that that started to be difficult for him to reconcile. Hmm. Yeah. So you were sort of empowered and it kind of made him feel more insecure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I've dealt with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm lucky now I'm married and Larry's very much supportive, but yeah, before Larry, it was, it, it could be kind of difficult to reconcile that. It's not a very traditional, it's not a traditional thing for a girl to do. And then on top of that, if you're successful at it, it can be hard for the right guy to, you know, to recognize that. So I think the other thing that would be kind of, diff- that was difficult in that same relationship, he had a hard time with the fact that when I travel, I'm often giving these demonstrations in front of a room full of men. Mm -hmm. 
So I think he had a little bit of a hard time with that too. Interesting. And you're very pretty. <laughs> so, oh, thank you. Yeah, so I can see that. Okay. So now that we've kind of talked about the business, I think I have a better idea of sort of how you make a living and the direction that you want to go. So I want to just change gears a tiny bit and ask, I always like to ask women, like, what are their favorite tools? So I sort of, you know, I have all my tools that I sort of geek out on, but like, I'm sure you have favorite knives and stuff. What are some of your favorite, it could be hand and power tools that you just absolutely love. Hmm. Like your top five. Cause I know it's probably hard to just pick five, but yeah. Yeah. I would say my Vic Mark lathe for sure. Mm -hmm. Comes from Australia. It's all cast iron, you know, mm. so it's three horsepower and yeah, mm -hmm. it's just a, it's, it's a really nice lathe to work on. Well, the Vic Mark chucks as well. Still don't think anybody's beat them. And our chucks, you mean the knives? No, the chuck that actually is the piece that holds the wood on the lathe. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah, for, for jaw chuck. So like you create a tenon on the bottom of a bowl, for example, when you're working yes. on the inside of it. Right. Yeah. And then you end up cutting that tenon off. But why is the chuck your favorite part? Because <laughs> that's almost, well, it's almost completely hidden the whole time. So what is it about that that you love more than, say, a different brand? Like what is it that's so much better about that one? Um, a number of different things. I mean, they've been the they've been the, one of the brands that has consistently used dovetail shape jaws. And yeah, I think Stuart has a joke that he tells, he says, you know, there are three things that, that man has invented that need no improvement. One of them would be the wheel. Another one would be fire. And the last one would be dovetail jaws. <laughs> and all that. these, other, all these other companies have tried to come out with different variations like serrated jaws and, and different things like that. And, it, and they're just not as good. They just don't work as well. So it's nice. It's simple. It works mm -hmm. and, you know, it functions the way it's supposed to. It's strong. It doesn't have any flux or vibration in it. And I can use an Allen key to loosen and tighten it, which is good for me because then I can put the Allen key on its side and get a bunch of extra leverage. This is getting really nerdy. No, that's why we're doing it. That's exactly what the show is about. <laughs> Where else are girls going to talk about tools like this, right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I love it. Okay, so those are sort of your bigger ones. What about like hand tools, like specific hand tools? Like I love it. I have a stiletto hammer, which I absolutely love, titanium hammer. I love Festool. Right. I have a couple small specialty tools that I absolutely love. Um, so like what are some hand tools that you just you just can't do without? So the gouge that I use most often, and I, every time I give a demonstration, I talk about how I sharpen this tool and what I'm looking for when I buy this tool and everything like that. It, it makes a world of difference. It's an elliptical or parabolic fluted bowl gouge with a, what I call 40-40 grind on it. It's a very specific grind. That's kind of my go-to. So I use it in spindle turning. I use it in bowl turning. I use it for making those tiny little finials and I can turn it on its side and it has straight wings. So I can use those like a skew. It can remove a whole lot of bulk really fast. I can use it for finishing cuts on a bowl. I can use it to make the perfect dovetail shape tenon. It does almost everything that I, that I need to have done when I'm turning. And uh, the ones that I'm using right now are Sorby. Um, there's, a, there's a few other brands that, that make some nice flute shapes. But yeah, I'm, I'm very particular about what I want in my bowl gouges. And by gouges, just because nobody else is going to know what you're talking about, you mean the actual knife, what I would call the knife that you use to like push into the wood a little bit as it's spinning and it starts to cut off little spiral pieces, like little sawdust pieces, kind of. That's what you're calling the gouge, right? Exactly. Right. The bigger the chips, the better. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's when it gets more fun, right? But yeah, the, the gouge is a, uh, it has a curve shaped flute and it's got a long bar. When it's new, the bar on the tool would be probably you know, about 12 inches or so. And the handle, I can change the length of the handle that I'm using with it, but my handle might be like 18 inches or 16 inches, something like that. So it's a pretty big tool. Mm -hmm. um, but that e extra length definitely helps with the leverage. Nice. And so what do you like to use for your finishing stuff? Finishing, I'm really, I think simple is better. So for my bowls, I just use walnut oil. 
But what about sanding though? You must use tools for some of that or do you need to at all? Well, so when a piece is on the lathe, it's way easier to sand <laughs> than like flat work because I can turn the lathe on and just hold the sandpaper up to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I would call sanding by hand. So you still have a lathe turning the piece around. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that, I, I just use regular sheet sandpaper. I mean, I, I like the higher quality stuff. I was using a Norton product that I, they stopped making it though. But somebody recently introduced me to the Festool sandpaper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It has like a special coating on it mm-hmm. so that the shavings come off of it. Yeah. Then like for the inside of a bowl, I would power sand. So I'm using a drill with a little round pad on the end of it. And the lathe is spinning and the drill is spinning at the same time oh, to sand the inside of a bowl. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you're kind of getting double duty basically. Yeah. Nice. Exactly. Okay. Um, and then one, I guess one other thing I was thinking of when you asked me about tools, would anything that Stuart designed, the guy who, who mentored me, the Stuart Batty tools are all phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I don't believe they're in production right now, which is very sad, but they're one of a kind and they're truly many levels above anything else that, that has been available in the wood turning world. So he designed a platform system to go along with the grinder to sharpen tools with a handle system where the handles are carbon composite. So they're not transmitting vibration to your hands. Wow. As much as other types of tools. He just kind of redesigned everything. And because he's been turning for so long, he knows each and every issue that you run into or every discomfort or everything that's that's making turning more difficult than it needs to be. So I, I would recommend those tools for sure. Nice. And and he's still teaching and stuff? Mm-hmm. Yep, he is still teaching. Actually, we're going to be doing a class together in February in Vegas, of all places. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I might come and see that. That's pretty close to me. That's like an hour flight, if that. Yeah, yeah. We I guess this podcast will be the first time that that class is even announced. So uh. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so speaking of classes, why don't you tell us a little? I mean, I know a little bit about them, but I know the listeners don't. So kind of describe sort of your classes and how you manage them and what the experience is like and what you're going to be teaching and, you know, how long it is, that kind of thing for the classes that you plan to be doing next year. Yeah. So the, uh, the classes that I teach here in Charleston, they're intensive style classes. So they range, sometimes I do a one day class, but most of the time it's two to three days. Some of them focus more on bull turning and some of them focus more on spindle turning, but I have a strong, I have a strong belief that you don't learn as much by just focusing on a project. So I like to, like if I'm teaching a bowl class, for example, I'll go over how we sharpen the tools. I'll go over how we make the cuts. And then the students will put a piece of wood on the lathe and I'll say, turn it until it's gone. I want you to practice the cuts and practice the motion and practice the mechanics of this until you make a big pile of shavings. What I want my students to come away from a class with is, is more a set of techniques and a way to be able to self-diagnose, to say, if I'm having this problem, I must be make, you know, doing this wrong, or I need to analyze what my stance is, or how I'm holding the tool, or, or how the piece of wood is chucked. And that's what I want, is for people to leave the class. It's going to take a considerable amount of practice to become truly proficient at bowl turning, but I want them to know what they're aiming for and to be able to self-diagnose. That being said, I do provide all of the tools, all of the wood, all of the machinery and the safety equipment and lunches for my classes. Most of my classes are open to all levels. So I'd say I've had people come here that have 20 years or 25 years of wood turning experience, and they're looking to learn a different style of turning. Or I had one guy that was having problems with his hands and his arms and his fingers with arthritis because the style of turning that he was, he was using was transmitting a lot of vibration to his hands and to his body. And he was having to use way too much muscle. So he came to me to learn a different style of turning. That was sort of his last ditch effort before he was going to have to give it up completely. And now he sends me Christmas cards. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. And that is, that is an interesting part of it because you are small. I mean, you're not, you're taller than me, but you're thin, right? You're not a big, huge person. And 
yet you're working with large amounts of speed and density of wood, right? Lots of RPMs. It is interesting that you're able to do your job at all, right? So my guess is you've learned how to use leverage and techniques with your body being lighter and smaller and less strong to actually get the same amount of work done, which means you probably get less injuries as well because you're being very efficient with how you use your body. Exactly. Yeah. Wood turning does not take a lot of muscle. It should not take a lot of muscle. I tell my students, you know, if you're, if your shoulders are all tensed up, if your knuckles are wide, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're really strained and sore after a day's worth of work, then you're working too hard. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be difficult. It, it should be nice and easy. And if you want to, you should be able to turn for eight hours a day, five days a week. Wow. I actually have an issue with my hands. I have what's called Raynaud's in my hands. Yep. I've heard of that. I have, my girlfriend has that. Yeah. So my fingers turn white very easily when they get cold. And one thing that makes them worse, if, if I look it up on the, on the Mayo Clinic website, it says I am supposed to avoid vibrating tools. So (laughs) (laughs) I have to be very conscientious of the way that I'm, that I'm making the cuts and the way that I'm using the tools. But it's also made you be better as well. Exactly. Because of that. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to, I, I see a lot of, I think traditionally guys were big and strong. And so they would sort of bully stuff around, right? Tools and wood and all kinds of stuff and just sort of make stuff happen. But I think women in the trades are generally, I feel are smarter. They're more efficient with how they do things because they physically can't do it the same way. And so they come up with very creative ways to carry a sheet of plywood without ruining their back or whatever. So um, it doesn't surprise me that you've found ways with your body to make it so it's efficient and it doesn't, it's not getting injured basically. Yeah. And so what is like the range of, of classes? You don't have to stick to this, but sort of what is, you know, what's a range of pricing? So we have sort of a general idea of what you're thinking you're going to do next year. So I mentioned the classes generally range from two to three days in length. Sometimes I'll do a four day class and, and the cost is about 175 a day. Like I said, that, that includes lunches and that includes the use of all the, all the wood and and machinery and tools and everything. So you're in Charleston. So most people, it's pretty easy to find, um, hotels and stuff like that. So basically it's their flight to get out there. Yeah. The hotel for a couple of days, which isn't ridiculous in Charleston. It's actually very reasonable there. There's a quite a range. I mean, you could, (laughs) you could go top of the line and stay in a a nice, beautiful, luxurious place if you want, or you could, you could go nice and casual and stay with someplace that's less than half a mile from me. Right. And so what's the lead time? Cause I know you have a website and we'll put that, you know, in the show notes, but if someone wanted to sign up and I'm raising my hand, um, if someone else wanted to sign up for say your, let's just say your bull turning class to start, what sort of, I mean, are these booked like six months in advance? Are they, are you going to have like a, an email thing where people could sign up to show an interest or? Yes. So I, I do have an email list and anybody who's interested in hearing about my classes can send me an email and I can add them to the list. I tend to wait until I fill in my travel schedule and I know where I'm going to be when, and then I schedule my classes in Charleston in between those. Right now I'm looking to schedule classes between probably January and April of next year. So yeah, if you would like to hear about when I schedule those, send me an email. I will also post those to my Facebook account and my Instagram account, and I will update my website. (laughs) Nice. Okay. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm super, I, it's another reason I, I, I love you. (laughs) I love listening to you talk about how you teach your classes. It is, you literally couldn't have said it better. It's exactly what I think is missing in the industry. So we teach carpentry classes in the summer here and they're basically, Mm -hmm. you know, they're basically beginner level power tool classes because it's very empowering for the women to sort of get over that hump. And my biggest goal is to get them from being terrified or scared or apprehensive to just basically being very comfortable knowing what every tool does, what the safety things are, what the things are, they're really not that dangerous at all. We teach our classes basically exactly the same way. We don't do projects. We teach tool mastery and the understanding of what each tool does and what's appropriate. And then we apply it to each successive project. Whereas most people, I think that are teaching anything, you know, there's not very much out there, but most people that are teaching anything in construction are teaching projects. 
And the problem is the student never really understands what they're doing. They never really understand when there's a problem. They don't know how to self-assess. They don't know how to critique themselves and get better over time. And so I love that you're literally, you're literally teaching it exactly how I would teach that class. And you're teaching how to reflect on yourself so that eventually you will be able to make any kind of bowl or any kind of product. And it really won't matter about the project. It matters about the technique, which is really important. And especially I think for teaching women specifically, because they tend to get lost in the project, right? And they never really understand how the tools work. So then they feel insecure about the tools naturally. I love that you said that. That's, that makes me want to take the class even more. Okay. My last little question though, before I let you go is just, so I did a little bit of wood turning very, very long time ago with my dad. He had a small lathe. He was a carpenter. You know, he literally did it just for fun and he would make, he would make some table legs for some furniture and stuff like that. But I remember doing it. And I remember how it was pretty scary. Like that thing moves pretty damn fast <laughs> and stuff yeah. flies off of it really fast. It can, yeah. it can. And so my, one of my questions was, how do you personally get over, maybe not so much now, but when you first were starting with larger blocks, how did you sort of manage the risk associated with that? Like, how did you get over the fear of that huge, several hundred pound piece of wood spinning quite fast and you have to walk up to it and, you know, it could bounce off and at you and your knives could fly off. And how do you manage that risk and the fear of that in the beginning? Oh gosh. Well, my first year turning, I had a lathe that was not, not a fancy lathe at all. And it had no tailstock, you know, typically to, to turn a bowl more safely, you know, initially you would, you would have the piece in between the headstock and the tailstock. Um, and I had a faceplate custom made that was really big that has something like, I don't know, 35 screw holes in it. (laughs) I I asked my friend Dale, the guy I took the first class from, are you sure that this is going to hold, you know, a a really big, heavy piece of wood? And he said, lady, that thing will turn an elephant. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) That thing will turn an elephant. (laughs) That was, uh, I guess, that was kind of part of what I do initially, but I, I think kind of naturally I, I was never as intimidated by that type of thing as a lot of people. I will say though, the first time that I, that I made that table pedestal for global furniture, I mean, I had a guy here working with me and he said, I, I bought an engine hoist to put the thing up on the lathe with and everything. And we spent maybe a day and a half trying to figure out how to get it mounted properly. And we got it up on the lathe and it's kind of like, okay, you know, I did look at, I did look at Tyler for a second and I was like, I don't know if I want to turn this thing on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now it's really scary, but I, I feel like technically, you know, I'm at a point now where I can do things to mitigate things. I'm always asking people's advice. You know, like I said, I, I asked Stuart's advice. I, I called a guy that I've bought a bunch of machinery and tooling from and, and asked his advice, really reaching out to all of the resources that I possibly could to get all of the input that I could to know that I was doing things the right way. I feel like in wood turning and and probably in a lot of the trades, the whole idea of trying to teach yourself how to do things or that you have to work on this alone in your garage or in your basement or whatever and try and figure it out. I would not recommend that at all. (laughs) But I, I think because of the training that I've had and because of the experience that I've had, there are certain things that you could do. So, standing out of the way of the piece of wood until I got it on the chuck, until I had something that was, that was gripping the end of it, that was making it more safe, you know, keeping it in between centers for as long as possible, all those kinds of things. But yeah, that biggest thing I think is learning the right way of doing things. There's no reason that anybody should have to figure things out on their own this day and age. Yeah. So basically proper technique, it was really what allows you to manage your risks, not I mean, that's really what you're saying. You, you really knew exactly what could happen and not happen. And you knew where you were sort of, you knew what to do and what not to do. Uh, you didn't just sort of wing it <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, and hope for the best. Yeah. Proper technique and, and common sense. Mm-hmm. Your biggest, your biggest piece of safety equipment that you have is your brain. So use it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. Well, awesome. Well, this has just been it's been great. And I'm, I'm super excited to take a class. I definitely want to do the, 
the bull class, even though it's not about the bull. I like, I love the concept of learning all those techniques and sort of how to, you know, self-critique and self-assess. So I think that sounds like a lot of fun. So what do you have coming up maybe for, I know you've got your next um, show you said is in February, but what have you got kind of coming up, you know, in the next month or two? I, I believe you went and got some some new wood from New York, right? And so you've got some kind of new projects coming up? Yeah, so that's for one of my ongoing kind of production projects that I have. Um, but yeah, I'm now entering into the realm of, of trying to cure lumber on my own. Um, it's one thing to, to rough turn a bowl and cure that, but now I'm learning how to cure boards and, and things like that. And, and handling that is like a whole nother. <laughs> A whole other issue, like you said, figuring out ways to, to deal with this really heavy stuff. And I've been lucky to have a guy come in and help me recently move some of that around. So I have a number of production pieces coming up. I'll also be working on a, a short video reviewing a lathe, the Laguna 2436 lathe. It's, it's relatively new. I'll be coming out with a video review for that in the next few weeks. What else? I guess I'll be working on my website, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In my class schedule, but I have a number of good trips coming up next year. So the the class in February in Vegas, I have another one in Portland next year in February. March, I'll be going to Hawaii. They have a symposium there. And then in April, I'll be going to Spain next year. Um, I'm teaching next summer at the Center for Furniture Craftsmanship. I'm also teaching next summer in Utah for uh, craft supplies. So I have a, a number of things coming up on the yeah, schedule. Yeah, it sounds like a full schedule, but it'd be nice if some of the listeners could see you in person because it's pretty uh, it's pretty exciting to watch. <laughs> I could have stayed for hours and just watched you turn wood. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's kind of mesmerizing just watching it. Like I have to say, it's, it's pretty mesmerizing. So, well, thank you so much for joining us and we'll make sure to put a lot of this stuff up on the show notes so that people can hopefully join us. And I would definitely love to take the class. What's the weather like in Charleston during that time period, during like the January, February, March, April? Yeah. So in general, during the winter, our highs are probably in the fifties, sometimes in the sixties. I do have a wood burning stove in my shop. Like I said, my fingers get cold really easily. So I, I keep it nice and warm and comfortable, but yeah, the, the weather is generally very mild in Charleston. And I have a lot of my students, I get a higher percentage of female students than other woodturners do, I think just because I am female. But but still, I would say most of my students are male. And a lot of the times their spouses would want to come with them just because it's Charleston. So that's always a good selling point. There's loads of other things to do around here during the day. Mm-hmm. How many students are actually in the class? I forgot to ask that. Like if if we got a group of women together, like what's the you know, what's the normal? Is it four? Is it 10? Like what sort of, how big is the studio for that? Yeah. So for the classes that I teach here in Charleston, I limit them to five. Nice. So you're getting a lot of one-on-one attention then. Yeah, exactly. The classes that I teach, you know, when I'm traveling, it all depends on the place. I've had a class of, I think, 11 or 12 students at a time, which can be, you know, that can be that could be nerve wracking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. We live in ours to 10, but I'm still like afraid someone's going to cut their hand off by accident. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Well, wow. I mean, I a class in February next year, we're going to have 12 students, but it's going to be both, you know, Stuart and I teaching together. Mm-hmm. So it should be again, a lot of one-on-one, um, one-on-one student teacher attention. Nice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And we definitely uh, look forward to seeing you turning live someday. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, Camille. Thanks so much for listening to Remodel Your Life. I sure have enjoyed being with you today. And if you really like our show, we'd love it if you would subscribe through iTunes. You can always send us feedback through email at Camille at RemodelYourLifePodcast.com. And I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Remodel Your Life Podcast. This episode has ended, but your remodeling journey can continue. Head over to RemodelYourLifePodcast.com to access all the resources, tools, and links mentioned in this episode. Until next time, get your hands dirty. 
and create the life you want from the foundation up. And thanks again to Blue Apron. I just love cooking with them and so appreciate their support of my show. Your biggest, your biggest piece of safety equipment that you have is your brain. So use it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it.